What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Strap on your headphones, because here we go! Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Wanna talk tough movies? Here's a superhero with the biggest pair of all. You looking for me? There she was, just walking down the street singing. Miss Elvira is a slimy, slithering succubus, a concubine, a streetwalker, a trap. Yes, she's got it all. She's everything you've ever wanted in a movie. A woman. And a casserole. You'll see lots of weird romance. What's that perfume you're wearing? Super unleaded. Don't smoke. Loads of drooling madness. Ew, I hope you change the sheets. Hey, Elvira, we got us a couple more volunteers. Great, just grab a tool and start banging. A whole gang of awesome monsters. I'm sad, you know it. And a few sleazy experiments. There's nothing wrong with G-rated movies as long as there's lots of sex and violence. The charge is witchcraft. We ought to have one of these every year. See Elvira as Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. But if they ever ask about me, tell them I was more than just a great set of. It's the greatest double feature of all time. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Josh Hadley. Can't get rid of me. I'm like a... Is there a good case of herpes or a bad case of herpes? I think they're always bad. Okay, then I'm like a bad case of herpes. I just won't go away. Also along for the ride is John Pilot. Hi, how are you? This week we were talking about the 1988 film from director James Signorelli, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. The film stars Cassandra Peterson as her alter ego, Elvira. Peterson has been playing the Elvira character since 1981, and this was her first foray into a feature film. The film tells the tale of Elvira, of course, who visits the quaint hellhole of Falwell, Massachusetts, where she inherits a dog, a recipe book, and her aunt's decrepit house. Her presence in Falwell upsets the status quo, pitting her against the city council and her evil uncle. 
Josh, when was the first time you saw Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and what did you think? I did not see this one in the theater. We'll, we'll talk about Elvira in general later, but I remember seeing the commercials for this because I'd watched her show and whatnot. This didn't have a wide theatrical release, and my theater did not get this, so I didn't see Elvira, Mistress of the Dark until home video. And I didn't really like it at the time because – it's not really what you expected from having watched her TV show and her appearances on like, you know, chips and stuff like that. You didn't expect this movie. And I think we'll talk a little bit later about how the humor in this movie is kind of stilted. So I didn't like it at the time. I appreciate it more now, but at the time I didn't think it was remotely funny. How about you, John? Uh, painful. Um, no, when was the first time you saw oh, the film? Oh, sorry. Uh, actually, yesterday. <laughs> wow, you were really prepared for this episode. Sorry. Um, yeah. I think I saw this one just a few years ago for some reason, and I think this we'll definitely be talking about this. By 1988, I was kind of tired of Elvira, and when the idea of an Elvira film was coming out, I was like, oh, geez. And it felt like, it kind of felt like at the time everybody was getting their own movie, like weird characters off of Saturday Night Live, and just people that shouldn't have necessarily been getting their own film were getting a film. And it really wasn't until I met my present wife where she was saying that this was one of her favorite films. And I was like, really? Elvira, Mr. Sith the Dark? She said, oh, yeah, we, I've been watching this for years. And so we watched it on VHS. That tells you kind of the timeline. And I found it very funny. And I was very happy to see it. And I was very happy to see so many of the groundlings in here. Uh, little cameo appearances by John Paragon, who uh, co-wrote the script. And the woman that played Missy Vaughn from Pee-wee's Playhouse. So I was really glad to see all of these great actors. And then Jeff Conway, uh, kind of before he uh, became a drug addict and everything. So it was... Uh, where w- I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt. Where was he? I was looking all over for his his appearance in that movie. Which was his character? He was the one of two bad guys. Okay. He was one of the uncle's henchmen. Okay, I got you. All right. So, yeah, and I actually enjoyed it, and I've uh, seen it many times since then. It is a great one to just kind of throw on on a Saturday afternoon. I don't know if the word that you were looking for, Josh, was corny, but this movie is corny as all get out. You mentioned Saturday Night Live. Do you know why this movie feels so much like a Saturday Night Live spinoff? Do tell me. It kind of is. The director, all he's ever directed was Saturday Night Live episodes, and he was a producer on Saturday Night Live. Now remember, Cassandra Peterson was one of the people who applied for and was turned down for the 1980 season of Saturday Night Live, you know, the, the disastrous season, the, the Gene Dominion season. Yeah, she dodged a bullet there. Not necessarily because she, then she got picked up later on. Because remember, Elvira was a semi-regular on SNL. She would show up every Halloween, and, and Cassandra Peterson was a featured player every now and then. So in reality, this kind of is a Saturday Night Live spinoff, kind of. 
Yeah, I, I forgot that she was on Saturday Night Live. I mean, Elvira was a fixture in pop culture for many, many years. And it, her show started, what, 1981. And I remember going to the video store, God, like the, the corner mom and pop video store before Blockbuster even was a thing, and renting some of the VHS tapes where she was hosting movies. And that was pretty much i think my first real exposure to her but then after a while she just started showing up everywhere she was all over television she would be in like bob hope specials on the grammys you know um some of those like super bloopers and practical jokes kind of things she was, was like, oh my... Coors. She, yeah. was spoke... she was a spokesman for coors she was a spokesman for PETA. she she appeared regularly on tv shows you know cop shows and things like that every halloween you know in the 80s the cop shows would have a halloween episode and elvira would she'd usually show up as elvira one of her best two of her best technically and no that's not a boob joke because she did it two years in a row was when she was on the fall guy and she appeared as the same character and the fall guy for halloween went all out i mean you got john carradine david carradine and all this and it's a big halloween spectacular and she plays elvira except she plays herself as having magical powers in the show in the fall guy that should have been the movie. Um, I was. I remember the Thriller videos. Remember the big box video cassettes? That's how I was introduced to her. The big box one from the early '80s. Yeah. Before they started the, switching more ones. Yeah. The, the 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 things I didn't like about the Thriller videos was at the time, I felt like I was lied to because half of those Thriller videos, I was like, these are movies I've never heard of. Visitor from Beyond the Grave. Well, yeah, yeah. And and then it's like, oh, wait a minute, it's only fifty minutes long. That's because those all those thriller videos, ten of those were actually episodes of the Hammer House of Horror TV series that they just threw on video, used the episode titles, dropped the opening sequence, and gave them to Elvira. So that's why ten of those are only 50 minutes long because they're actually Hammer House of Horror episodes hosted by Elvira. That's why I invited you on this episode, Josh, because you would know that kind of stuff. <laughs> Damn straight! <laughs> I, and I appreciate it. Were there any episodes in that were released on video that you can see an entire Elvira episode from beginning to end? <laughs> no, her old sh- her old show was never released on VHS at all, and the ones that are on DVD are only the ones that she could now secure the rights to, because. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Mike wants this in the show or not, but a little bit of history for like the horror host stuff. When you when you worked at a TV station back then for the horror hosts, they usually got the cast off movies. You know, you'd get you'd get the Clint Eastwood movies and the Burt Reynolds movies and that for prime time or for Saturday afternoons. But for late at night, you got the crap because this. And why did the stations have the crap? You, you didn't get to say, okay, I want this movie, this movie, this movie, this movie. You had to buy a package. So if you wanted The French Connection, you also had to get Alien Contamination, Night of the Living Dead, and Soul Brothers of Kung Fu. They came in the same package. So these stations were like, we paid for the movies. We might as well show them. We'll just throw them on late at night. So she was stuck with all of these movies that the station didn't want. And then years later, when it comes to DVD, I read an interview with her where she said relicensing these things were an absolute fucking nightmare. Movies that her station paid $100 for in 1981, now they wanted 
$30,000 to put on DVD. And she's like, that's insane. Yeah, and that's why all those KTMA episodes, I imagine, of MST3K aren't available, because those were the same things, just the the extra films that the station had. Exactly. So that's why there, there's only, I think, 12 episodes of the old movie macabre show on DVD, and uh, that's probably all there's going to be. Because cause you'll notice when her show came back in 2010, every one of the movies was public domain all of a sudden. She didn't have the same caliber of films any longer when she came back to TV. When I, you see, that's the other thing is because I remember, like I said, from 1988. And the other thing I was trying to remember was, was she in any New York markets? I mean, she probably was. I just don't remember her from being around that time. I mean, I was probably, like you had said, 1980, 1981, and I was like between 11 and 12 or something. I don't remember her being on late-night television in New York. Do you recall any channels by any chance? Okay, it wouldn't have been at that time, because at that time, Movie Macabre, or Movie Macabre, as she pronounces it on the show, Movie Macabre was only an L.A. thing, and it was farmed out to some other, a few other markets, smaller markets where the the same owners owned TV stations. But then there was 26 episodes that were farmed out of that, you know, like five or six seasons that were farmed out of that in 1987 that were put into a syndication package with a new intro, a much, much more flashy introduction, so they weren't just repackaged. And those were released into national syndication. So if the New York market got it, most likely it would have been the 1987 national syndication package. And unfortunately, what happened to most of those is because this was a syndication boom where you had Tales from the Dark Side, War of the World, Star Trek, The Next Generation, Friday the 13th, the series, Freddy's Nightmares, all that. The syndication market was so packed. Most of these got buried at 3 and 4 a.m. on UHF stations. So not a lot of people saw the syndication package in the late 80s, unfortunately. Was this the same time? Because I know New World, I think, it was sold around 89. I think Roger Corman. And so the only reason why I'm asking you this question is just out of curiosity. If it might have gotten lost in that sort of mess of distribution stuff that you just spoken about. Roger Corman sold New World in 1984. Okay, really? And, wow. okay. Yeah, Marvel Comics ended up buying it around 1988. Yeah, it, it might have been right about the time Marvel Comics acquired New World Pictures. Wow, I didn't even know it was that early. Yeah, because a lot of people remember New World putting out like the Hellraiser movies and all right, this stuff. Right. And, people are, and, and even Godzilla 1985, and people are like, wow, Roger Corman did that? It's like, no, he, yeah. sold New World. he sold New World prior to that. All of that stuff is after they bought it from him and started mismanaging it into the ground. What did he do? Um, we're going on an off subject. I'm sorry. I'm just curious what he did after. What studio? He, he, after he sold New World, he formed New Horizon Pictures. That's right. Okay. All right. So let's talk about Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, as far as the plot goes here. We have Elvira at a local TV station, so definitely kind of basing it off of her early days, and desperately wanting to get to Las Vegas. And apparently the Flamingo wants $50,000 up front to kind of back the show, and she has no idea where she's going to get this money, but... Isn't it a fortunate coincidence, and I think she even turns to the camera and says this, that her aunt dies and she's going to be part of the will. So immediately 
Elvira thinks that it's going to be this huge windfall of all this money, but when she gets out to Falwell, Massachusetts, unfortunately she finds that she's just getting her aunt's house, her dog, and a recipe book. And the house is falling apart. The dog is uh, kind of obnoxious, but once she gets a haircut and a dye job, Algonquin is uh, pretty hip. And then uh, the recipe book ends up being a book of spells, which her uncle desperately wants. And her uncle is played by the amazing character actor, William Morgan Shepard. And he is great. And he, I mean, everybody in town, except for the kids, really have a problem with her. Whether it's the lascivious guys at the bowling alley, played by Jeff Conway and Frank Collison, or it's the uncle who desperately wants a spell book, or all of the kind of uh, city fathers and mothers there. Uh, <laughs> The people at the hotel, um, Chastity Pariah, the tastemaker around town who's played by Edie McClurg, who's another Groundlings player. So it was great to see her as well. And at this point, I think everybody knew Edie McClurg as the secretary from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I don't trust this kid any further than I can throw him. Well, with your bad knee, Ed, you shouldn't throw anybody. And she was great in um, Eating Raul. I mean, she was wonderful and everything, which is another great film as far as some of the, the ground links there. Speaking of, uh, we talked on the Eating Raul episode as far as John Paragon showing up as the man who was uh, trying to sell uh, Paul Bartel a, a dildo. And in this, he's the gas station attendant. And for some reason, it, so she's taking a cross-country trip to get to Falwell and stops for gas during the opening credits and pretty much ends up blowing up the gas station. I have a real, I have a real problem with that scene but first of first of all by the way john paragon was also a regular on her show as as the obnoxious breather character what is a breather what do you want well i got another funny knee slapper for you it's a really good one. Oh, i bet it is oh let's hear it well did you hear the one about the nervous carpenter i'm waiting with bated breath tell me the one about the nervous carpenter he was always biting his nails well, and I think everybody knows him as Jombie, the uh, genie from Pee-wee's Playhouse. But he was He's another one of her people that she brought over. Also, one of the executive producers of this movie is her, is her now ex, but at the time her husband. Th- that gas station scene always bothered me because, to me, Elvira's the villain of this movie, Mike. She straight up murders that guy, and she doesn't even pay for her gas. You see her get out, pump the gas. She never hands him any money. And then because he's rude to her, he goes inside and the building explodes. She straight up murders him for comedy. Not necessarily. I would question that. Because if you remember, when she left, the gas tank was on the floor and the water was spilling. We never really saw if she knocked it over. Did we? Yeah. 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 She, 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 okay. she, didn't, she didn't hang it up. She didn't hang it up and it fell down. So she oh, blow, right. and the okay. guy walks into the building before it blows up. So she just straight up murders this guy for being a jerk to her. And we're supposed to think she's the hero? Yeah, I really don't mind that she murders the guy because he was rude to her. I would love to murder all people who are rude to me. But she, right. Mike, she doesn't <laughs> even pay for her gas. She literally pumps the gas and drives away. This is not a hero. But he's dead, man. I, I'm more concerned about his life than the gas situation, but it's okay. It's just... So we get to town, and yeah, pretty much everybody's against her, except for the the kids. Oh, and then also the guy who runs the local movie theater. Uh, unfortunately, it only shows G-rated films. 
Elvira tries to change that and just her she's kind of like this force of anarchy that comes to town and uh, I always like this like fish out of water kind of thing and they play it pretty well as far as this goes and then mixing in the whole idea of the you know the uptight citizenry and then the witchcraft I, I thought that this came together pretty well as far as uh, mixing all of these elements. I kind of disagree with you on that. Yeah. I think I think the movie didn't come together. It has parts that I think are great. Okay, so I agree with you on that part. I think as a script, this is this is a first draft that they shot. It needed three or four more drafts because it feels completely disjointed. And I don't want to say it feels like they're making it up as they go along, but it's just it's so formulaic. You know, every single one of the beats, every character is completely one-dimensional this is the villain character this is the henchman character this is the sidekick character this is the love interest character there's nothing in this film that is not just straight out of screenwriting 101 and i really expected more from elvira because she is such a she's so clever when you see her doing something live she has a great wit to her her show was very funny and very well written that had great jokes and none of that translated to the movie, weirdly enough. Well, she has, you know, the other. I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know if it's related or not, but there's two issues that I was thinking about. One of them was it kind of felt like they were trying to make a cult film, and you can't really try to make a cult film. I think a cult film just kind of has to happen. I don't think you could deliberately do it, and it kind of felt like they were trying to do that. And the other thing that kept really bothering me was – and I don't know if this is how she was because I'm really not familiar with her older material. But there's this kind of almost Valvillian sort of joke thing where Bob Hope and um, Milton Berle used to do this where they would do a joke and they would kind of pause and wait for an audience response. And the joke could be absolutely terrible, but they would wait for that applause, and it kind of felt like that through the entire film. Now, I don't know if that's the way she was during her show or not, but it really felt uncomfortable during the, uh, the entire movie because she just – every character actually, I felt, just kept doing that. It was that really bizarre, uncomfortable pause. Okay, wait, I just said something funny. Laugh now. And even with a couple of innuendos, which actually kind of worked, there was that just that very brief second, and it just – I think it kind of just kind of threw the beat off of the entire film completely. But I also agree with you, Josh. It did feel like a first draft. It didn't feel like they went any further than that. It was just kind of rushed and done really, really quickly. Because there's really nothing in it that just seems like they – it just it was very, very quick. It seemed like almost like a bunch of really sloppy television episodes just kind of glued together. To try to come up with some you know linear television show. I agree with you on that, and I think that might come from the fact that the director is straight from Saturday Night Live. He's used yeah. to wait. He's used to live television where you do wait for you wait a beat for laughter, and right, which which is weird because the only extra on the DVD is the movie's trailer, and you can see. When you watch the movie, you're like, okay, that's a trailer line, that's a trailer line, and that beat works when you're making a trailer line, but it doesn't work when you're watching a movie. And that, the movie, it feels – and Mike, I know you love it. I'm sorry, but it feels like, it, like a very amateur production. This really feels like 
like a director who does not really know what he's doing. And keep in mind, I'm bashing the film a little bit, Mike, a lot. I still enjoy it on a certain level, but I'm just the, – the, the film snob critic in me says this is not a well-made movie. I can see where you're coming from. I think I kind of like it because of that amateurness. Yeah, I guess that's a word. But uh, – and I think also I like it in hindsight, You know, seeing it so many years after the fact. Had I seen this in 1988, I might not have liked it as much. I mean it is definitely not as polished as like a Pee-wee's Big Adventure or something, but – for me, it, it I don't know. It just holds together. Now, you said that there were some sequences that you liked a lot. What were some of those? I really liked the the intro where it starts off on her show and, and, she, and she's watching you know an old Roger Corman movie. And then she gets into a fight with the news lady. And then I, I couldn't believe the Texas owner with the it's milking time. And he just grabs her tits. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, I forgot. I had forgotten about that. <laughs> that specific moment but i i really like that part i i like when she's showing attack of the killer what if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation where it's not about mission statements but a shared mission at u.s customs and border protection we go beyond to protect more than borders from ship to shore air to ground cities to local communities cbp agents and officers are keeping people safe Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Tomatoes in the theater. Okay, I like the parts that take elements from her TV show and put them in the movie. Does that make sense, or am I just too limited in what I wanted in an Elvira movie? No, it makes sense. Was it just me, or did they redub uh, Peter Gray's from It Conquered the World? I haven't seen It Conquered the World in so long. You might be right, but I, I haven't watched that in like 20 years. He learned almost too late that man is a feeling creature. And because of it, the greatest in the universe. You learned almost too late that man is a feeling creature. And because of it, the greatest in the universe. And then I I, I do want to point out one of the other things that, as a comic book fan, bugs the hell out of me. The the, the scene in the bowling alley where Horace from Dr. Quinn is reading that Spider-Man comic and his friend tears it in half. (laughs) Yes. Do you realize that that was Todd McFarlane's first Amazing Spider-Man issue and that's now a $60 to $80 comic? Poor Josh. But but that was just just the newest issue at the time. But now I look at that and I'm like, oh my God, do you know how much people pay for that issue now? Oh, I am so sure. They must think we're really stupid. They're going to kill Spider-Man with plutonium. He's got radioactive blood. She's a comic fan that just bothered me when I rewatched this. I love how inappropriate some of the sexy stuff is in this film. Yes, like, yes, yes. When she's doing that screening of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and then suddenly it becomes like 
kind of this, you know, to use your your word, John, a burlesque show where it's like it's supposed to be flash dance inspired and then it ends up being kind of more Carrie inspired. But just her flipping around and everything while her and her stunt double flipping around. <laughs> just like the kids should not be seeing this. <laughs> well, did you catch a very mild and I'm going to screw up this. I'm really going to screw this up completely. There's a very mild innuendo in there. It's kind of like one of those blink and you'll miss me moments it was something about giving head well and then when when they're fixing the house grab a hammer and start banging yes yes it was just like you know i mean obviously i don't think a kid's gonna pick up on that but it it was almost like they kind of had to do something to make it somewhat tolerable for an older audience i mean i don't even and that's the it's very ambiguous as to what type of audience is trying to go for but because, you also got to remember that the, the characters that she's making these innuendos to are mainly underage characters. These are like 13- and 14-year-old boys she's making the innuendos to. That's disturbing in retrospect, isn't it? And that was the audience, though. That was my age when I was watching her on VHS, so I can really appreciate that. I don't know. I didn't find any problem with that. The only thing that I found kind of weird was that they show her Vegas act at the end and her doing the tassels. I was like, this is a whole different movie over here. It really feels like we've stepped into a different territory. I was trying to get some information on that, and there's very little about it, but I think there was something about she was trying to start some sort of a bizarre career where she wanted to do some kind of a Vegas thing. Josh will probably know more about this than I do. Where she was trying to start some kind of a thing where it was going to branch out to some kind of a Vegas show or something. Well, she used to be a showgirl. Yeah, I think she was trying to brand the L- – I remember reading something in the late 80s about she wanted to like do like what Elvira did for Search for the Next Elvira you know, in like the – what was it, 2006 or whatever that was. She was trying to do something kind of like that where there would be an Elvira stage show. And it never really panned out. I think that's kind of an offshoot of that. But but that didn't last very long because it did not work for whatever reason. It's kind of funny that she that that Vegas act is such a part of it because as I was trying to set up an interview with her, her person kept saying, no, no, she's working on her new act. She's going to Vegas. And I was just like, do you realize how ironic this is that you're talking about this Vegas act when I want to talk about the film? But I almost wanted to ask him, like, does she need $50,000 from her dead aunt? <laughs> but well, that that didn't happen. Well, it kind of, I mean, it, I mean, this was like, well, the film was 88. So it's like, what is that, 18 years ago or something? I want to point out that W. Morgan Shepard is actually used really well in this movie because the movie is, you know, like like we pointed out, almost a vaudevillian style comedy. His character plays it totally straight. He is a villain straight from a fucking Hammer film. <laughs> yes, I agree with that absolutely. Mm. And and the the juxtaposition of that actually does work because he feels like he doesn't belong in this film, both in the film and when you're watching it. Like his characters, for, you know, escaped from from a Peter, you know, like Peter Cushing was chasing him, and he somehow landed in an Elvira movie. And then he interacting with the rest of the town doesn't even work either. Like when he finally comes in, and it's kind of the uh, the quint moment of Jaws when he comes in is like, oh hey, I know how we can get rid of Elvira, and just all of the people in that town meeting are such nincompoops that he has no patience for them whatsoever. 
You're playing right into her hands. It's Elvira who is responsible for all this. Of course. I should have known it was that little harlot. We ought to ride her out of town on a big fat rail. She might enjoy that too much. There is a much more satisfactory solution. We can have her arrested. Arrested? On what charges? It so happens that there is a law on the books that dates back to the Salem trials. It specifically forbids, and I quote, any townsperson from practicing the ancient arts of spellcasting, demonology, alchemy, and conjuration. The charge, my fellow council members, is witchcraft. That part did work, which if you'd played that up more, I think that would have helped the movie. But the movie constantly stops for boob jokes. And I get it. Boob jokes were a big part of her show. Boob jokes were a big part of why she was in pop culture. But the boob jokes don't necessarily work in the movie. Like when she's washing her windshield and squishing her boobs, it's yeah. like it, it's like you realize Kentucky Fried Movie did that same gag way better, right? But in every 80s teenage sex comedy as well before that, that's kind of what it felt like anyway. I don't know. Just... No, you're absolutely right because that's the other – one of the problems I have with the comedy in this is by 1988, these are all early 80s jokes. Yeah. Yeah. The whole movie feels like it was written in the early 80s and never updated. That's the same problem Haunted Hills has. It feels like a 1980 movie that was made in the 2000s, and it was – the humor does not evolve. That's the problem is the humor just isn't there. It's like, okay, it, when I was 14, that joke might have been funny. As an adult, it's almost scary unfunny. Did you guys feel like slightly cringeworthy just watching the film? Just in general, it was kind of – I just had this feeling where I was like, I know that was supposed to be funny, but I just feel really awkward right now. Because I didn't get one laugh out of it. I mean, I hope I don't sound too arrogant. It was just like – I don't know. There was something about it that just made me slightly uncomfortable because I just was like, I know I'm supposed to be laughing right now, but I'm just – it's not happening. That's what happened to me when I watched Haunted Hills. I still laugh during Elvira's uh, Mistress of the Dark. I think, Mike, we should take a moment to say, I can't speak for John, obviously, but for myself, as much as I've crapped on this movie in this episode, I still enjoy it. Like, if it's on TV, I'll sit and watch it. If, you know, the VHS is lying around, I'll still pop it in. There's something about the movie, as much as I crapped all over it, that brings me back to 1988, for better or worse. I think some of those... Corny jokes still hold up. Elvira, I'm sorry. Are you all right? Yeah, I think so. How's your head? I haven't had any complaints yet. Excuse me? I'm actually kind of surprised that some of the some of the celebrities that Elvira was really tight with at the time don't make cameos in this. Like, I really expected, just re-watching this a few weeks ago, because I hadn't, I hadn't seen it in 10, 15 years, but rewatching it a couple of weeks ago, I really expect to find some Cheech Marin cameo that I missed. I mean, she, she appeared in, in Cheech and Chong movies. She appeared in the uh, Cheech's 
Born in East L.A. music video. Cheech appeared regularly as the devil on her old show. And they're close friends in real life. So I – and, uh, and her ex-husband manager, Mark Pearson, I think, was also Cheech Marin's agent as well. It, it was his manager too. So I really expected a Cheech Marin cameo. I don't know why that didn't happen. Well, would Cheech Marin have really fit in in Falwell, Massachusetts? Yeah, actually, he, yeah. he, he would have – in the <laughs> he would have in the scenes like at the TV station or something. There's a way you could get him in there. Or, or he could have been playing the devil again. Like I said, he was a semi-regular on the old show. As literally, I mean, it was just him in a cheesy Halloween devil costume, you know, with a plastic pitchfork. But he was the devil on Elvira's old movie macabre show. Nowadays, he would have been playing a gardener. True, very true. I don't know if see that's another. Would they be able to modernize that movie for now? I don't know if it would work. Oh, I definitely don't think so. Unless we happen to go back to the city on the hill when President Trump takes us there. Oh, yes. Well, that's uh, yeah. I see the pendulum definitely swinging back if that happens. So it would also have to be extremely disgusting in the humor category as well, I would assume. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of the, the, the future supervillain president that we elect as Trump, you've, you've got the whole right. You brought it up earlier. Reagan's America. For those who are too young, when Ronald Reagan was brought in in 1980, he, he brought modern conservatism. And he, he, he brought the moral majority, and he was going to clean up America. And that's kind of another one of the reasons that this movie kind of rings flat in 1988 is that was all over and done with by 1988. Uh. Again, owing to my – this was written in the early 80s and never updated because if this had come out in 1983 – I could see this absolutely as an answer to the moral majority nonsense that Reagan had brought in. By 1988, no. One of the things that uh, Reagan's America brought us was the rise of televangelism, and you know Falwell being definitely one of those guys. And this is kind of an answer to that as well. Jerry Falwell was the one that Larry Flint made fun of, and who sued Larry Flint and got us the monumental Supreme Court decision that says oh, we can okay. make fun we can yeah. make fun of celebrities or people in the public eye. Jerry Falwell was less of a TV preacher, although he was that he was one of the less showy ones. He was he was the one who blamed hurricanes on gays and stuff like that. Falwell never really had a fall so much as after Larry Flint kicked his ass in court, he just never rose as high again. So Jerry Falwell He's actually a different breed than Jim and Tammy Bakers and stuff like that. Falwell was the guy who would come on and say that Teletubbies were gay and they were corrupting our kids. Is he yeah. dead yet or no? Was he still alive? Yeah, he's dead. He died in 2007. Falwell was the guy who said that we were to blame for the September 11th attacks um, also because of homosexuality. So He was a charming fellow. Right? Oh, yeah. Uh, but but, but yeah. you have to look at, you know, like I said, the time frame. This whole rebelling against Reagan's America, which, Mike, you're absolutely right. That's what this movie, the theme kind of is, doesn't work in 88. For one thing, it's not Reagan's America anymore. Well, yeah, it's almost Bush's America. Yeah. yeah. Which was pretty much the same thing, like Reagan light L-I-T-E. Because people got had gotten so sick of the moral majority bullshit, they started the whole swing back against that, which is one of the reasons that Bush only really worked as a one-term president. Because he didn't have the moral majority that Reagan did. 
Yeah, the the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, him throwing up on the Japanese premiere. Well, that, was, um, that was pretty awesome. Yeah, thousand yeah. points of light. The yeah, light. thousand points yeah. of light. No new taxes. Raised. Was he ra- the raise the wall guy? No. No, no. Okay. Yeah. no the, that's Trump is the wall. <laughs> yeah. Whoa, wow. Reagan wanted you to tear this wall down. <laughs> no. Trump wants the Mexicans to pay for oh, another that's wall. That's a cool irony. All right, yeah, all right. All right, we're going to take a break and play back a couple of interviews here. The first is with uh, Vincent Talbot's henchman himself, uh, Billy, who's played by Frank Collison. And the second one is with the film's co-writer, Sam Egan, and then I want to make people aware that we did talk to the man who played Vincent Talbot, William Morgan Shepard. Now, that is a separate interview that we will be posting over at the Projection Booth, uh, projection-booth.com. And that is a rather extended interview. Mr. Uh, Shepard gave us a lot of his time, and it was great talking with him. Talk a little bit about Elvira, really about three minutes worth of Elvira. So I didn't want to just chop that out and throw that into this episode. So be sure to check that out. And we will be back after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hi, I'm Hugh. And I'm Pat. And we're the hosts of the Way of the Buffalo podcast. We're a weekly-ish, sometimes irreverent fiction and interview podcast about telling stories in the digital age. Basically, representation is important, and the more books there are out there, the, the more range and the better the quality. We featured stories from Ken Liu, Amanda C. Davis, William Meikle, and others. I put you in charge of the Parallel Worlds Research Division, and this is the best you can do? This isn't just paper, sir. It's the fictional footprint of an entire civilization. Plus, interviews with such luminaries as Mer Lafferty, Chris Roberson, and Philippa Ballantyne, just to name a few. Literary fiction is genre fiction without anything happening, because <laughs> genre fiction has both. There you go. Yeah. But, there you go. Yeah. Yep. So it's better. So if you want to know where storytelling is headed, look us up in iTunes. Or visit wavethebuffalopodcast.blogspot.com. Because fiction's not dead. It's just going the way of the buffalo. Tune in to the way of the buffalo. This is a fabulous podcast. Hugh brings a wonderful aesthetic to the diversity of stories that he puts up and the and the authors that he interviews. Uh, so definitely go back through the archives and... 
treat yourself to some buffalo-y goodness. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know, it's messed up, right? I read that you were pretty much born into a show business family, or an acting family, I should say. That's true, and I just went to see um, Hal Holbrook do his one-man show, my parents, when I was born, were at Northwestern. My, well, actually, they met at Denison University in Ohio, and they went to um, my mom directly Hal there. And that first summer, I was in a tent theater there in Denison. Uh, we were there, and they were doing theater, and I was from the carry-on prop. So, but last week I saw Hal do his one-man show again, and uh, he's been doing it for sixty years. When I was about 12 years old, because we're friends with Hal, he invited us to come see the show in New York. We stayed at his house. So I went to a matinee by myself, and, and it was playing on Broadway, and he invited me to come backstage and watch him do the makeup, which at that point took about three hours to do. This was over 50 years ago now. And he said, uh, now, he changes the, the show every day. He adds changes pieces. So he said, I'm going to do a piece for you today. I said, well, how do I know it's for me? He said, oh, you'll, you'll, know, you'll know. It was a ghost story, and at the punchline, he knew where I was sitting. He pointed right at me. So it was quite a thrill to then see him again last week, and also about eight or nine years ago, I was doing this show, this movie called The Majestic, with Jim Carrey in it. Walked in the makeup trailer, and there was Hal, and he turned around and looked at me, sort of did a double take, and he said, John, which was my father's name. I said, no, close. It's, that's my dad. It was my dad, uh, and then because I hadn't seen him since I was 12 years old, and it turned out I played his assistant in the movie, so we had about a week together. So that was great, great. So, so it was pretty cool. Yeah, so, so to answer your question, I, had, I wasn't born into a theater. Family. My dad was a playwright. He did a one-man Lincoln show. I used to travel around with him and help him out. And my mom directed me in shows. And I actually was forced to play a boyfriend to my sister when I was very young. That was <laughs> awful. <laughs> but um, yeah, my mom cast my sister as my girlfriend in this play. So yeah, I started doing Peter real early. Just kept doing it. So how did you decide to make the move from theater into movies? A lot of people I currently work with, uh, in, and I still work in theater here in Los Angeles, a uh, theater company that I helped found called Pacific Raven Theater just is celebrating its 30th year right now, and I, I just did a show there. A lot of us uh, were uh, doing theater up at uh, ACT in San Francisco or at a theater called Pacific Conservatory of Performing Arts, which has a theater in the Central Coast, and one in Solvang. And about the same time, we all made our moves down here to L.A. And, of course, 
most of the time, if you're trying to work in film and television in LIE, you're not. You're waiting or you're auditioning. So we formed that theater company, Pacific Resident Theater. And I mean, we were all here because we wanted to make a living. We knew realistically you can't make a living in theater, but very, very few people do, especially in LA. So, you know, we got, you know, got agents and started pursuing careers. And some of us are still at it, like me, and some of us got smart and became bankers. So, <laughs> but um, it was a, it was just the, um, the way that I had, if, if you're going to make a living as an actor, in LA, you know, you've got to go into film and television. So, and I just wanted to try it out. So I did. Was that transition fairly easy for you? I mean, but I I know you had been working on the stage, but stage acting is you know, so people different. People always ask that, and 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 um, it, it, my take on this is that um, it's a heck of a lot easier to go from theater into film and television than the other way around. Because when you're in theater and television, theater, you get a very, if you're doing it right, you're getting a lot, very solid training. You're getting discipline of doing a show over and over again. And you know, you have a method of working. So it's really, <clears throat> if I were in the same room, I could demonstrate this. But people say, oh, you know, aren't you, you, know, you going to be too big if you do try to do your theater acting on film? And it's true, you have to make an adjustment. But it's the same thing as if I'm standing two feet from you. I'm not going to talk the same way as if I'm 40 feet from you. So uh, you make that adjustment and you realize, and it, it does take an adjustment to realize that you have to do very little. The camera will catch it. And I'm still learning that. But I mean, we work in the theaters, we work in small theaters, we work in Los Angeles. It's almost like film work because the front row is literally like three feet from your face. So you can't get away with being too big. Uh, you don't want to be too big there. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But the other adjustment is that, that you really, in film and television, you're a very, very small part of a huge machine. So much more director's medium. And you spend so much time waiting around, and so and you get so little. In many cases, a great deal of cases, so little direction, as opposed to theater, where you spend weeks and weeks. Well, I guess that would probably be the tougher transition then, is to go from much more of a collaborative type of, of situation on the stage to where you could almost feel like you're on your own at times uh, in, in a different show. Yeah. You basically show up and they cast you and they expect you to be off book and 
you know, I've had directors give me no direction. Uh, so there's some exceptions. When I did The Village with uh, M. Night Shyamalan, we had two weeks of rehearsal before we, we started filming. So that, that but that's exceptional. Uh, most of the time you show up and the rehearsal you do is that maybe if you're lucky, I mean, unless you're a big star, uh, you get two or three minutes. Then they say, go away while we set the lights. They spend 45 minutes setting the lights. Then you come back and you do it. And you hope uh, that you give them what, what they need. I mean, I think Dustin Hoffman said the actress, film actress job is, I'm, I'm not quoting him exactly, something to the effect of uh, a film actress job is to give the editor as many choices as possible. I worked recently with Lily Tomlin on Grandma, and um, she never did uh, take the same way. She used the same lines, but it was always something different in each take, and uh, it was interesting watching her do that. I remember seeing you initially more as, I don't want to say a background player, but I just remember you showing up in things uh, the first few times that I saw you, in things like Amazon Women on the Moon or uh, Moonlighting, where you just oh, were... way uh, back, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you were just a really interesting face that really stood out. Uh, and then to see you, like I think a few years after that, or maybe even the next year, seeing in, you in um, Elvira... I, I was just like, oh, finally, I get to see this guy talk as well. And just, I was... Well, I was talking in those other roles, not to put down background actors, but the technical definition of a background actor is basically someone who is um, in the background and doesn't speak. If if they speak, they generally, uh, they're going to have to bump up your pay. I never did background work, although I, you know, I totally respect what they do. But yeah, there were small roles, and I just consider myself, and still do, a utility player. Uh, I mean, I played bankers, I played homeless guys, I played Hungarians, I played a lot of Southerners. I mean, the thing you mentioned about the look, when I was in, at ACT, I did a training program there for one summer, and um, there was a great actor named Charles Hallahan, who's no longer with us, and he said, you and I will work, we've got the moogs. Irish, the Moogs, a mug. And I said, well, I wasn't sure what he meant. He said, you know, the Moog, he pointed to his face. It's funny because this is my worst name-dropping story I have. I was working on a film. It's actually called Hope Springs, but it wasn't the one with Meryl Streep and Tommy Lee Jones. It was had a great cast. We were shooting up in Canada and had um, um, Colin Firth, Mary Steenburgen played my wife, Heather Graham, Minnie Driver, great cast. And we go out to dinner, all of us together, small little town, about 200 miles north of uh, Vancouver. We're at this diner, and the uh, waitress comes over, and she starts to take her orders, and she does a double take, and she looks right at me, and she runs screaming into the kitchen, get me a piece of paper, get me a piece of paper. And I, I kind of look over at Colin, and he's grinning, and Mary's kind of grinning, and she comes running back, says, oh, my God, I love Dr. Queen. It's my favorite show. Oh, my God, oh, my God. Well, could you make it out? You know, I'm making it out. I'm trying not to. I'm just turning beet red, I'm sure. So she gets her autograph, and she runs off to the kitchen to show. We can hear her. There's a little silence at the table. and I, <laughs> So I finally said something like, uh, well, you know, when you come into people's living rooms for six years, I guess <laughs> they get to know you. Oh, the other thing was that she... As I was autographing it, she turned and she sort of looked at Minnie Driver and said, oh, you're Minnie Driver, right? And Minnie Driver said yes. And she said, oh, okay. 
exactly what she did. <laughs> she never recognized Mary Steenberg, and she never. I said, "This is, you know, this is." I wanted to say that I didn't want to blow their cover, and she didn't even ask who were these other people at the table. But the whole point of the story is is not so I can name drop, although that's fun. But it's to say um, when you have an interesting face, yeah, people, you do get spotted. So I get spotted in the weirdest places. And they're never sure. They're almost never sure of who I am. They just know that they've seen me or something, which will be my epitaph. Either you look vaguely familiar. That's my epitaph. You look vaguely familiar. I have to say that video pirates skip, by the way, even though it's what a couple minutes in Amazon women, that is one of my favorite things that just, I still quote that today. Uh, who is that? William Marshall. Just that, Oh, I'm so scared. <laughs> Help yourself, mates. A chest full of video discs. No! What good are they? Can't record on them. They're not compatible with my system. Talk about the transition from stage to film. What you learn when you begin working in film is the precision you have to sometimes have as far as um, hitting your marks or your body position. Because I had this scene in the video pirates thing where I I reached into a, a treasure chest and I pulled up the DVD. I had to turn the, the DVD in such a way that the camera was over my shoulder and then was shooting over my shoulder and they wanted to catch my face reflected in the DVD. I can't really show you over the phone, but it was, it was a matter of like I had to be, if I was more than like a half an inch off or even less, <laughs> the shot was blown. So it was like take after take of like, is this right? No, that's not right. You know, angling. So you learn right away that sometimes, um, has, you know, like I didn't go to acting school to learn how to, you know, you, these, these very technical things you have to do sometimes, which is really a, a huge, it's really a much more of a challenge. And on stage, you're totally immersed and you're in the world and everything. But in film, you know, you got, you know, you got 45 people around you. And they all want to go to lunch. <laughs> and if you don't get the shot, uh, they're going to go into um, into serious money. So, you know, those sort of things are part of the film acting world. What do you remember about your time on Elvira? First of all, it was twenty. It was nineteen eighty-eight. You do the math. Well, it's like twenty-eight years ago, something like that. It was about, I think, the fifth thing I worked on. First of all, I remember. Cassandra's being incredibly sweet and nice and professional. And, and the whole production was, they were very nice people. Um, that's not always the case. And uh, although I found, in general, uh, most working movie and television sets are very happy places because everyone's happy to be working. It could sometimes be a little strange when you come into a show that's been running for a long time and you're a guest, a guest star, you know, and, you know, they they may may not even want to talk to you, but on this, she was so sweet. And one of the things I most remember is at the, um, we had a red carpet preview or opening night at Grauman's. It is Ryan here. And I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And when we were shooting it, um, my mother-in-law, uh, who's from Michigan, actually, St. Clair Shores, and her husband came to the set, and Elvira, uh, Cassandra treated them very nicely. Uh, she made sure they had the chairs to sit in, and and so there we are at the at the preview. This is months later. She's there, and she's walking down the red carpet. People are going, you know, Cassandra, Cassandra, over here, over here, over here. And she spots my mother-in-law, and she says, "Oh, yeah." She calls her by name. Says, "Come on over, come on over," and greets her and gives her a hug and everything. And it's like it just blew blew my mother-in-law away and in the middle of this huge scrum of photographers and everything. She's taken the time to say hi and remember, not only that, but remembering my mother-in-law who she met, you know, months ago. The other thing I remember is working with Jeff Conway. And I'm so sad to hear that he passed away fairly recently. Well, actually not that recently, I think about five years ago and playing Morgan, uh, Morgan Shepard's, uh, we were his henchmen and that was fun. We had a scene where, and I can't remember the lines exactly, but um, we were in a bowling alley and we come over harassing Elvira and she ends up pouring a beer on my lap. We had to shoot two different versions, one for television and one for film. One was, I said something to her like, hey, honey, come over here. I got something to show you. And she looks down at my lap and says, oh, I forgot to bring my microscope or something like that. But on the television version, I think I said something about like, hey, sweetie, I got something on my mind. And she said something about, well, I forgot to bring my microscope. <laughs> I don't remember exactly how it was. And the other thing I remember is, is this is a strange little thing to remember, but um, someone used the, name, the word realtor in a line or referred to someone as a realtor, and we had to reshoot the scene because the word realtor is copyrighted. Really? Yeah. If you look at the word realtor, whenever you see it in an ad, you'll see a little C, a little C circle. Uh, it's like Xerox is actually copyrighted, but people always say, you know, will you Xerox this for me? It wasn't my line, but I remember what, what an odd thing to have to do. We also sh- we shot... At part of it at Raleigh Studios, which was like two blocks from where I lived at the time. So that was nice. But it was a great experience. It's just a nice, nice group of people. That's basically what I remember. You play a creep so well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that, that is definitely a compliment. And because the next thing I really remember you being in was Wild at Heart, where it was just that mm-hmm. that whole strange big tuna Texas area and you being in there and uh, oh, just wonderful. How was that working with David Lynch? It was really interesting. First of all, he cast me without an audition. I hadn't even met him. 
pages cast me. And I didn't know one of that. They called me and said, David Lynch wants you to be in this movie. I thought, well, well, what? No audition. And I thought, well, either he really likes me and he's seen my work or it doesn't matter to him. <laughs> he just thinks I have an interesting face. Either way, I got, I got the job. So, you know, it's not really too important. The only other, the only person's, well, there been a couple others, but M. Night Shyamalan cast me in the village without an audition. He did see, he did look at my demo reel with Lynch. So I just showed up and we were shooting, actually we're shooting at the same hotel that I later shot scenes for whole 10 yards movie with Bruce Willis, that Hungarian gangster. What was interesting was he was shooting a 360-degree pan. Now, if you can visualize that, that means that everything is in the shot. Normally, when you're shooting something, there's a place where people could stand behind the camera because they're only shooting in one direction. Or if they change, then you turn it and call turning around, you know, turning around the other way, and they, they move all the light stands that are in the shot, and they move the other side. But because they're shooting 360, everything's in. So it all had to be set up so nothing showed as far as equipment or crew. And they ran out. He also likes to work improvisationally. So there were people improvising lines, and he ran up there, the film canister. I forget the technical word. You know, the thing that holds it. We weren't shooting digitally at that point. So every take, he would run the, bring the entire roll out. And then I remember we broke for lunch like at 3 a.m. or something. I had a line in there where somebody asked me, what's going on over there? And he says, I remember making a pornographic movie, Texas style. Wow, you want to join in? I don't believe I got the script. That's not unusual, especially with David Lynch and some other people. I know Woody Allen never... He will give the actors only the pages they're in. And if you're playing you don't necessarily need to know the rest of the world because that's not your reality. What happens an hour ago in the film in some other location is not your, you know, you don't need to know that. So um, I didn't really know what, when I said there were many pornographic movie, Texas style, exactly what that meant. But I found out at lunch because he had hired, David Lynch had hired two or three of the most obese porn actresses I've ever seen. Well, the only <laughs> obese port actresses I've ever seen. I mean, they were really, really big. So we were having lunch, I guess you call it, at 3 a.m., and they were coming down the food line, and they were just like, I guess they were in training because they were just filling up their plates. And the other thing I remember is, um, I guess they've been doing night shoots for about a week, and um, Nicholas Cage and Laura Dern were a little, getting a little um, crazy. And they were cracking up off camera when I was doing my lines. I, you know, a little touchy. I'm not, I'm just this guy there for one night and they're the stars of the movie. But I did go over to David and said something about the effect of it's kind of throwing me. And he, he went over and said something to them. I, not when I was around, but they came over to my trailer later and knocked on the door and said, we want to apologize. We're just kind of, kind of a little crazed from all this night shots so we didn't need it blow your take. I said, no, no, that's fine. <laughs> but I was really surprised that he took that, um, took the, the time. So I, I, I just thought he was really interesting. And I think he's a very um, actor-oriented director. I don't think he's an actor himself, but he certainly understands actors a lot better than 
some of the directors I've worked with. There are directors, that, film directors, who don't have a clue how to work with actors. And then there are others that work very well with them. So he certainly is in the, in the knows how to work with actors category. Yeah, one movie that you were in that I think it's a terrific movie, but then I've heard that it wasn't that great of a shoot, and maybe you can clear this up for me, at least your part of it, was uh, The Last Boy Scout. Was that pretty good for you? It was fine. You know, I basically uh, say my lines and keep out of trouble and, you know, show up on time. What I heard, and this is all secondhand, thirdhand, was that a few days prior to uh, the shoot, Somebody had, there'd been some interview that Bruce Willis had given, and they had talked to him about the runaway costs of film production. And they said, do you think that the salaries of the stars, such as yourself, is affecting, is a part of this runaway cost? He said, no, no, it's the unions. It's the unions that are doing it. Now, I, I got to say, I have no issue with, with uh, Bruce Willis. I've been in two movies he's shot, and... Uh, I could tell you an interesting story about auditioning for the other one, but you know, the whole ten yards. So anyway, so um, as I say, I have no issue with him. But apparently, um, when he said it's the unions, that didn't sit well with some of the um, the Teamsters and the IOPSI people, because you know almost everyone on a film set, if it's a film, a major production, is in a union. So what I heard, and again, this is all hearsay, is that some union members were very upset about this and uh, somebody broke his uh, windshield wipers when he was over on a set of another movie and um, that some of the crew trucks had that quote blown up and stuck on the sides of their trucks on the last Boy Scout shoot. So again, I didn't witness any of that. I didn't witness any animosity between uh, Bruce and, and the crew, but that's what I heard. And that's the only thing I'm aware of. You know, I mean, I don't think the film got tremendous reviews, uh, but it certainly was. Oh, this is an interesting story. Uh, so Tony Scott, uh, God rest his soul, was directing it, and I go in for the audition and I do the I do the piece, and uh, there's about fifteen people in the room. He says, "Say this line." He gives me another line. I say the line, and he turns to everyone in the in the room. And he says, "You know, it takes a certain kind of actor." to say that line and he turns around to me and he goes and you're not it so get the fuck out of here I kind of like looked at him and thought is he joking and no one laughed and I said well good luck with the project and I walked out keeping my dignity intact and I'm in the office out there getting my parking thing validated and the door flies open and he says hey and I turn around and he polaroids me and then slams the door shut again and before I get home, there's a message on my machine that I've got the job. <laughs> he was just messing with me. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power. Loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. And he's just messing with me. So, But I use as an example when I talk to people about auditioning is that you can never be sure about how you're being received. They can fawn over you and say you're fantastic and you never hear a word or they can be, you know, staring at their phone the whole time and you think they don't care a bit and, and they cast you. So you, you can never be sure. Well, now I have to ask about the, uh, the whole time yards. Again, this is a story I tell when my wife and I sometimes teach a class on auditioning about how you can never be sure about what's going to happen in auditions. So I'll go in and it goes well. And, uh, Howie Deutsch is the director a couple of days later, he calls me at home, which is unusual, and said, I really, really would like to use you, but they are really keen on using John Turturro. They want to use John Turturro. And I laughed. I said, well, that's, that's funny, because I played his cousin in Old Brother Where Art Thou, so see the family resemblance there. And to myself, I'm thinking, no, John Turturro's not going to take this role. So I said, well, okay, wait, let me know if... if uh, happens. So a couple of days later, he called and said, you know, John Turturro passed on it. I said, oh, okay. So he says, well, now they're talking about Steve Buscemi. <laughs> okay. Okay. This is pre-Boardwalk Empire. So, you know, but still I'm thinking, well, I don't know. Maybe Steve, he's definitely kind of character guy. I could see that easily. I said, well, okay. So, so call me and let me know. Let me, call me if anything happens. So, about a week later, my agent called and said, oh, okay, so they want you to come in for a day on um, on the whole 10 yards. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, they want you to rehearse. I said, oh, so do I have the role? They said, well, no, no, not, no, not either. They just want you to rehearse for a day. They'll pay you for the day. They're just going to essentially, you know, rehearse slash audition you. So I go in and Bruce is there and nephew, um, uh, I'm going to see Matthew Shepard, Matthew Perry, what's his name, you know, and it's a scene where Bruce and Matthew wake up in bed naked together. And after a night of heavy drinking and Matthew says, why am I naked? And why does my ass hurt? And, and in the scene, I've, they've kidnapped me and I'm tied to a chair, just sort of looking at them. And I say something about, Oh, a little male bonding, huh? And he says, he, you know, I've obviously gotten the wrong impression. And he, he's, Matthew Perry's character is very concerned. He said, no, 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 I, I fell down the stairs to explain why his butt hurts. I fell down the stairs. And uh, there wasn't another line there, but so I improvised. I said, uh, I looked at him blankly. I said, what stairs? Because where we were, there were no stairs. What stairs? And... So they kept that in the film, and you see him when, when I say, what stairs? He throws the door open, and he stares out the door because he doesn't know where he is. And in a panic, and he sees that there are no stairs there. So at the end of the day, Bruce came over, shook my hand, and said, welcome to the show. So I guess that. So then I knew I had the job. But uh, as an actor, you just have to protect yourself by not uh, not getting your hopes up until 
he's actually on the set in costume. I wanted to ask you, do you really think that hot dogs have gotten a bad rap? <laughs> it's so funny that people thought of that. I, uh, at the, the um, premiere of that in New York, I came out of the, the, uh, the premiere and this very, I don't know what she was on, but she was high on something. And she looked kind of like a hooker. And I don't know how she got into the screening, but there she was. And she came over to me and she just like stumbled over me. Oh, you're the hot dog man. I love hot dogs. Okay. That's nice. But it hadn't occurred to me. Hot dog. Uh, You know, I don't really care for hot dogs that much. But uh, anyway, what was interesting to me about that scene I had a different intention. I was playing a different intention in the scene than I think that Knight wanted because there's a little, the little girl is there. I thought my whole purpose when I come in and we're about to take off, you know, I had to, we had to go into the house and we had to get some stuff and then we had to pot them into, into our, you know, truck and our vehicle and then drive away. And I'm trying to basically, I felt my character was trying to make a joke about hot dogs. To, to lighten the mood and to keep her from being feeling frightened because I'm a dad and I know the way to if your kid is frightened you, you joke around them and use attention so I thought the whole thing about hot dogs was a joke but he said oh no oh no you're completely serious about hot dogs you really don't think that people respect hot dogs the way they should so I said okay so that's the way I had to play it yeah I wondered why you're so earnest in that scene <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing was later, a couple scenes later. I, well, in that scene, I say, uh, well, I know, "Oh, by the way, I know what's causing this." It's, uh, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched the happening and wants, plans on watching it. Don't listen anymore here. So, but I turn to them and say, "You know, I know it's. By the way, I know it's causing all this. It's the plants." And then I give some explanation of why. And I so I said to Mike. Because there's a scene later on when we cross paths with the National Guard guy. And I said, you know, if I believed it was the plants, why wouldn't I do something? I mean, as a nursery owner, I would have respirators or I would have, or, or even if I didn't, when we ran across the National Guard guy, wouldn't I ask for, um, if he has a gas mask, wouldn't, don't you think that if I believe the plants are doing it, it's somehow, you know, some, some sort of chemical they're putting off? <laughs> I mean, it's not like, Anyway, he said, no, 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 no one takes it seriously. But I take it seriously. Right. And wouldn't you know, later in the the movie, he has two old ladies watching TV and knitting, and they're wearing gas masks. Anyway, it was an interesting premise. And then just like a week, about two weeks ago, I auditioned for his thing, Wayward Pines, and the role was a gardener to his plants. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I guess he must remember me uh, for uh, the category of uh, gardeners, the people who talk to plants, because I did that in, in, the, in the happening. So, don't think I got the role, but I guess I don't know. <laughs> you, you might have to go and sit in on rehearsals. You never know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was curious what it comes to you. I mean, I, I keep throwing stuff at you. What are some of your favorite ones? What What have you done that you've really enjoyed? People always ask me that. I would say Oh Brother was one of the most interesting projects I've worked on. 
And I really did like working with Colin Firth and Minnie Driver and Heather Graham and especially Mary Steenberg playing my wife. It was just a joy to collaborate with her. And I was just sorry. It's called Cold Springs, and it was about a writer who's been dumped by his fiance of like 15 years, and he flees England, and he's an artist. And he comes over, and he ends up staying at our hotel, and he he sketches me. And while he's sketching me, I have a conversation with him about what he needs to do. And Colin was so wonderful. Uh, they all were, especially Colin and Mary, um, such warm, wonderful people. That that was a nice, really nice experience. And Mary was like our social director, so she had something planned every night. So one night we went karaoke, another night we went bowling. The highlight of that shoot was uh, singing "Ground Control" to Major Tom in a karaoke bar with Colin Firth. Yeah, but I have three kids who are really fantastic, and they really. Um, I'm now an empty nester, but they really are the focus and have been the focus of my life. My oldest is now in uh, med school, and um, she was at Stanford as a runner. Uh, she was one of the best runners in the state of California in high school. And then my middle daughter, that's Claire, my middle daughter, uh, Eliza, um, got a, a Fulbright scholarship and was in Nicaragua and um, is now working full-time for uh, a nonprofit in, in Washington, D.C. And then my boy, who's 20, is in um, the Naval Academy. He also was a very good runner and was recruited by the Naval Academy for his running and runs cross country and track for the Naval Academy. And so and that's, they're just my pride and joy. And uh, the other thing, and I'm going to give this as a, as a plug, I'm doing a project called The Long Riders, and it's not the Stacey Keach. James Keach movie of the same thing. It is a social media project. I have a friend named Vic Ferrari who I've known since 1968, back in early theater days in San Francisco. And he is a hepatitis C survivor. He called me out of the blue and said, I've recovered from hepatitis C. I'm cured now. And I want to do this thing to try to help other people with hepatitis C. Here's my idea. I want to ride the entire Pacific Crest Trail on horseback from Mexico to Canada. And so that's what we're doing. We're, we are creating a social media program where we're going to ride the trail. We're going to shoot video on the trail. We're going to have um, social media professionals who are going to maintain our website. We'll post our videos from the trail there. And we'll also be interviewing hepatitis C survivors. Um, hepatitis C now kills more Americans than HIV. Between 65 and 70% of the people with hepatitis C don't know they have it. And you know, the, the common stigma about hepatitis C is, oh, it's all drug users. Um, and a lot of people did get it from IV drugs, but there's a whole new generation. So it's thought to be many baby boomers, and they are the primary people who get it, have it. But there's a whole new generation because there's a whole new, if you read the stories or watch 60 Minutes, you'll see that there's a whole new heroin epidemic going on in the, in the in some of the you know rural communities like Ohio and Indiana, um, and that means more hepatitis C. So, anyway, that's a project. It's um, where if all goes well, we'll start the ride in April 2017. It'll take us about five months to do the ride, if we hope. It's, and Vic uh, and his brother Steve and I will be doing the riding, and we're also raising for each mile we ride. We want to raise funds to get 20 people tested. So that's the other part of it. So. If your listeners want to 
know more about it, they can go to our Facebook page, which uh, just you know just search for Long Riders Hepatitis C, or they can just go to www.longriders.org and they'll see our website there and learn more about it. So that's my pitch for what I'm doing off camera. Well, sort of be on camera, but uh, not not as an actor. get into writing? Were you a journalist first or more of a scriptwriter first? Well, I was a journalist first uh, in the sense I went to journalism school and I flied my trade as a journalist briefly, uh, wrote for Rolling Stone and a few different magazines, kind of came in the back door in television. But as far as aspirationally being a writer, I, I never had that particularly. I could do it, but it never occurred to me to make a living at it. So even as a journalist, it's sort of caught me off guard. So needless to say, when I um, sort of came in through the back door in, in television and movies, it was nothing I had planned or, or it was quite inadvertent. Tell me about that back door. What, uh, how do you mean? Well, and I always like to say that there is there is no front door in, in uh, show business. So it's just various windows and, and, you know, cracks that you slither through. But in, in the sense that I, I, I got a break, I was doing kind of a ghostwriter thing for a time and just learning the trade and helping out people who were getting credits on television. And uh, I, I found it a wonderful apprenticeship. At, at some point, I said, you know, the next time... I write something, I'm going to get my name on it. That was the case. So it was, it was kind of, a, that. that's what I mean by the back door. It's just that there's always this kind of circuitous path that gets you anywhere along um, along the career path there. And what were some of the early things that you're working on? Well, the earliest thing I did was I was a, uh, working as a, a documentary researcher for Cousteau, it, with, not during the shoots, but after they were shot and while the narration was being applied and all that. So that was quite fun. And then uh, my very first uh, gig in television was the first writing credit was The Incredible Hulk. And then uh, shortly after that, I was a producer of Quincy for four years and wrote seemingly every episode, and certainly not, but it it felt like it. And um, I certainly cut my teeth there on uh, on Quincy and gained a relationship with um, NBC, and and then I went to 20th Century Fox, which is where I met uh, Cassandra on an episode of The Fall Guy, but I'm jumping ahead here. (laughs) Well, I wanted to ask you about Quincy, because it was such a great show and still a favorite. I've been going back and rewatching a lot of it on Netflix now, which is terrific, and watched it in its original run as well. What was that experience like? Oh, it was a fantastic experience, and Truly, it was, um, you know, it was an education for me. And my joke back then and still is, is that, that Jack Klugman hated me like a son. 
So we <laughs> we got along famously, but it was a very intense, you know, relationship. And he had such a long history of butting heads with writers. It was he became kind of notoriously known in Hollywood that way. Right from the beginning, we I got along with him very well. And I don't know whether it was you know what it was about my temperament or or the combination of us, but we you know because we could. You know, the the shouting and everything was absolutely not a problem for me. And, and I learned the meaning of hopping mad on the set of the show. And he would literally jump up and down if he was dissatisfied. And, but, you know, uh, quite a, um, a a great learning experience and uh, a trial by fire for me, certainly, because I went from... Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Um, you know, a... Someone who had done had a couple of credits under their belt to um, being, in essence, a, a quasi showrunner was in that capacity for about four years. So that was cool. Yeah, I was going to say it's kind of unusual to have a writer slash producer. Usually, it's one or the other. In television, the name of the game is is being the writing producer. Now, the the physical production and everything is the line producer, and then there's executive producers who may or may not be writing producers. These days they are. But um, it's really the only way to have any control over uh, your work in television is to have that credit and that authority to uh, to see your scripts through. Now you would move on to do uh, Auto Man and The Fall Guy and kind of maintain that same position as the the writing producer. I take it that the... uh, the the studio had a lot of faith in you. Yeah, those those were heady times, and I, I you know, uh, I've had a, quite a few um, years of work under my belt, even at that point when I went over to Fox. So, yeah, it was I was fortunate, but uh, there was um, a lot of you know creative activity on the lots in the day. Then, of course, you know, not we didn't have the five hundred channel universe of today, but. For back then, it was busy times and and um, a lot of fun. So yeah, tell me about that first meeting with Cassandra Peterson. I had um, always been a fan of hers from afar, and um, we, we were going to we were contemplating a Halloween episode for the Fall Guy, and I just said, you know, why don't we get Elvira? And I and people like were thought it was joking, or that, or was it a good idea, or or maybe we could look into it, or whatever. But you know, I. Um, we quickly managed to find that she was amenable to, to being on the show, and I wrote the script called, I remember to this day, October the 32nd. She was a total pro. She came on set, and 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 she just, the first time I met her, you know, we were chatting, and she said, you know, you really get me as a character. And I felt so good about that, because I thought I did. And so the... It, during sometime later in that filming of the scene, I just said to her, well, when are we going to do the movie? And I was kidding, but not kidding. And she said, well, you know, funny, you should mention it. And then that was the beginning of 
a larger conversation and um, the involvement of John Paragon and, and Cassandra and myself in um, the birthing of uh, the Elvira movie. Now, what was that like working with Paragon and um, Peterson? I mean, they had had a working relationship being in uh, the same comedy troupe. Did you fall right into the fold with them? Well, I, I, there, was, there was definitely that um, history that they shared in the Groundlings and their personal styles and their, and their friends. And I respected that enormously, but it, and, but it never stood in the way of the three of us having a, a really good chemistry together and um, it worked I, and it was the most fun I, I think uh, perhaps that in Northern Exposure that that I've had as a writer just, just sheer fun but I think that that, that um, Cassandra and John's work together and you know comedy uh, history and everything I think that was invaluable and again if Probably the most critical, of, uh, to, you know, uh, involving in the beginning of the script. So it was a boon, I thought, and uh, I, I felt very privileged to be sort of uh, a a third member of this, you know, of this team. And it was uh, it worked out great, I thought. What was kind of the process as you guys were writing this together? There was a lot of laughter in the room. We we, you know, we were really silly, and we were and we were completely open. And um, but the process was very early on. Were just the way any script is begun, except that uh, you know if you're doing it alone, I would say the most difficult part about writing alone are the, uh, the violent arguments. In some ways, um, you know, you always have that best idea wins kind of mentality in the in the story room. And that's how we, we began. We just started with the kernel of an idea, and then we would start to, to riff on early scenes. And then by the end of a, a working day, we would say, well, why don't you do this scene? Why don't you do this scene? Why don't you do this scene? And we would come back, each having crafted a, one of the scenes. And then we would, it would be then subjected to the, the scrutiny of the room, and they would be tweaked and modified. So that was, and it was a very kind of normal process, but for, you know, I, my history was in drama, although, you know, I was always sort of bent toward comedy in my mind anyway, and, and some of the early things I did um, kind of in the um, um, ghostwriting world were for, you know, primetime comedy. So, But it was it was a, a really productive process. There was time pressure, but we still, we you know, we managed to get our goals accomplished, and then it took a few months, and there was, all of us had other day jobs, you know, and, but this was a really important, I mean, for, for Cassandra, it was everything. It's what she had been focused on for so long. And she, and it's her vision that really is the terminal influence, obviously, and in the character she created, which I, I think is so sturdy as a, as an American icon today. I just really inventive and fun. I was just reading an article in a New York Times magazine today on Pee Wee Herman and Paul Rubin. So, and just tracing his history of, of you know, of a comic icon and a character not coincidentally created out of the groundlings and has, you know, had that kind of staying power and he's making a fantastic resurgence with his new movie and everything. But, uh, you know, I, I always believed in uh, Cassandra's original invention of uh, this character and that it, there was something so viscerally delicious about it and funny 
a great character, and that's what, what inspires all good writing and, and certainly comedy. I love the quickness of the jokes, and I mean this as a compliment, the corniness of the jokes. They just they all hit that same pitch, and it's just fantastic. <laughs> well, that's you know what comes out of a character that that is present in the room and can try on any line, uh, you know, uh, at a moment's notice. But I think we prided ourselves in that singular voice that was her character and that really holding sway over any uh, anything that was, um, you know, more important than that. When did you say that you kind of came on to the project? Was it, uh, what, 86 or so? The fall or, or late 86, yeah. Or I, I believe so. It took, what, a year and a half, two years to get this finally before the cameras? It didn't take that long. I, well, not really. It really, and in in movie terms, it was fairly short. You know, we got the interest very early on from um, Brandon Tartikoff and NBC Studios, which were just beginning their first ventures into feature filmmaking. I had had a prior relationship with Brandon Tartikoff, and he was a huge fan of Cassandra. So that speeded the process up somewhat, and but I would I would say a year and a half closer, probably to um, to you know um, principal photography and from absolute inception stage something like that. And well, she's been mulling it, had been mulling it for years beforehand. So, but but our process of, of from inception script writing, I would call it um, to move to movie making was about a year and a half. Yeah, that is pretty fast. Yeah, it is pretty fast, and and uh, we had a um, a good director, uh, trusted NBC uh, director James Signorelli, come on early on. So it um, it moved pretty quickly once it got a green light um, through New World and NBC Productions. Yeah, it's always so difficult when I talk to writers because there are so many projects that people work on where they you know die on the vine or you just don't get the credit or whatever it is. But was this one of the first film scripts that you worked on versus television? Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> the funny thing is um, the same year. I mean, I'm, I've never been known as a feature writer you know, before, during, or after that, although that year, I, three features got made of mine, that, uh, one being the John Lennon uh, documentary for Warner Brothers uh, that was released in 88, along with uh, just at almost the same time as the Elvira movie, and a uh, sort of low-budget um, cult horror film, which shall go unnamed, <laughs> which I put my pen name on, but it was a theatrical release, so... Um, I got a little taste of uh, of the feature world that uh, that year, but um, I, I was relegated to the the trenches in television uh, where I, I really always kind of had my heart was. So, and it is a ch- such a challenge. I mean, the feature world and television are both very challenging environments, and the idea of a tortured history of any project is, you know, it's going to be true. 99 times out of 100. And then, um, and you know, that this was, never went on to become a, uh, a financial hit and, you know, until it became, you know, the, the video and downloads and things. And, but it was, it was really a, a kind of a, uh, a labor of love for everybody who was involved. And, uh, I still get people saying they, they watch it and, and laugh and, uh, 
enjoy the character all these years later. There are so many good, weird tonalities to it, and one of them kind of always strikes me as like the uh, uh, Abbott and Costello monster movies. Just having those <laughs> oh, that yeah. kind of wackiness in the middle of a horror film. Oh, right, right, right. Like, uh, you know, showing her high heel and impaling her uncle's forehead. <laughs> kind of nonsense. <laughs> Yeah, we were going for, for you know for that sort of bigger than life um, uh, writ large, just um, physical comedy and and just lowbrow fun retro gag making and and uh, and with her spin on it and her sexiness and her just appeal as as uh, a character, I think it really it's such, it's so it's so much she's so much you know when. A project is fun to write for, that the, that it, the audience should get involved because um, hopefully they'll participate in the kind of same joy you have in in crafting it. Now, when it comes to the character of Elvira, she always just kind of treads that line of going from peekaboo type, you know, person to uh, just right past that, right into kind of the more risque kind of stuff. Where where was that line, and was there ever a time where you're like, she, you know, she want, uh, Cassandra wanted you to go farther, or where you went too far, or how, how was that kind of balance struck? Because she is always just riding that line, which I love. Yeah, and I think it was a really conscious choice to kind of overstep at the very end of the movie, which kind of shocked a lot of people including myself. But you, you have to remember that, that uh, Cassandra came out of the Vegas world. She was a chorus line dancer in Vegas. And she and and I'm not saying this just to say, oh, well, that's why she would go there. But, I mean, it's actually an appreciation of that kind of tackiness and hard scrabble world of the chorus girl and everything that she really identified with. And and there's part, you know, and remember, Elvira's dreaming of going to Vegas and getting her own show. So, and that comes from, it's so her, in the sense of her history. In fact, there's a great story where she would say, I would, I could sit at a table in the 10th row in uh, Vegas and go uh, down the chorus girls and real, real, fake, real, fake, 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 real, real, fake, you know, and just, she she said, I had that instant ability to judge boobs. So <laughs> she it was always the she, she kind of maintained the spirit of, you know, the the kind of almost Ruby Keeler chorus girl who was in the wings waiting to be discovered and, and, and with with of course this crazy comic twist to it all, but there was something genuine about it too that, that I think came from this, you know, sort of wide-eyed girl that had once been, you know, kicking up her heels and topless in, in Vegas. When it came to the actual shooting of the project, were you still involved at that point? Because I know sometimes it's like, here's a script, I'm off to the next project, or were you right there? Well, I was there, f- I remember being there for several days of shooting. And and, and also, um, I have a cameo, which is normally I don't wouldn't brag about, but it is kind of fun. Uh, right at the end of the picture, so I was there for the you know shooting my little scene, and and I, I think I uh, crafted a pretty good line for myself for for my uh, uh, Oscar consideration performance there. Yeah, so I was there for a portion of it, 
and I, 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 you know, busy with television pilots and everything at the same time, so I couldn't be there for the whole shoot. But I certainly, you know, was there for enough of it to really enjoy the ride. And right around that time, um, uh, Cassandra and I worked together on a um, uh, an ABC Disney thing where we were in, shooting in the haunted house at Disneyland at 3 a.m. for anyway, I I, I diverged. But they're very fond memories, they're, and I think it, it really it it comes down to uh, such a artful and innovative character that that Cassandra created that really. Um, you know, I think she has dreams of of the character living on, and um, and you know, and her kicking back a little bit. But um, I don't know what stage that's in. But I, it's very hard to find someone who could really pull it off. I've always thought, by the way, that and that flow, that the you know the the uh, notorious television um, uh, insurance saleswoman. It really is it has to is a nod to Elvira and kind of her brand of humor and her sort of fifties. You know, wide-eyed approach to comedy. I think she, and then I say this with great respect, and and God knows everybody borrows from everybody, but I think she does a little bit of of uh, Elvira in in that character that's you see every twenty minutes on television. Yeah, to the point now where they're making fun of how often she's on TV. Exactly, and commercials. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. You know, I never thought about that, but I can definitely see it, especially with uh, some of the exager- exaggerated hairstyle yeah. and mm-hmm. makeup. Yeah, and of course they they both go back to Lucille Ball, and so it's you know there is a, a intertwining of of people's inspirations always in, in comedy. Well, yeah, and especially for me, Elvira and Mae West seem like they're really coming from the same cloth. Absolutely. Really, some of the lines that you guys wrote just seemed like they could have come out of Mae West's mouth. <laughs> right. And, and imagine, of course, there was that period in the 30s where there was there was a, a more you know, risque elements to films than, than than the period prior or after. But still, it's amazing the stuff Mae West got away with, and uh, you know, yeah, innuendo out the other. <laughs> that glorious pre-code Hollywood. Yeah. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a little bit about Northern Exposure because that was such a fun show, and it was. I mean, it, it had a lot of people that appreciated, but sometimes I still think that it didn't get its moment in the sun as much as it should have. Yeah, I mean, it, it was recognized um, by the Emmys, and it, but it never it never had a huge audience. But it you know it did run five years, and so I I had it certainly, and it certainly had the critical approval and sort of posthumous approval of a lot of fans and critics. But I know what you're saying. It wasn't like it was a this breakout hit that, uh, and, and and that seized the zeitgeist. It was all, it did. It was always kind of a culty, quirky show. But it's still cited as you know one of the you know innovative early not early but 90s uh, shows that uh, the people mention a lot. And the chemistry w- with the cast and those characters was just phenomenal. Yeah, it was wonderful and, and um, already well in place. You know, by the time I was a, a writer producer there, so good, and the, and the acting and the great characters, the uh, Marilyn and the nurse and Ed, and just wonderful, 
the show had what started in 90, I want to say. And so you came in 94, 95. So mm-hmm. it must have been kind of uh, an interesting thing to jump into a show after it already had that established well, feel that, to it. Yeah. And that really, you know, it, it, you, the, it's so in place. And you so see, you don't have, you know, some people would say, well, you're, you're kind of on hallowed ground and you get, get the be very careful and but I found it like okay everything's in place I know these characters I can hear them as I write and it, that made it lovely for me and I was able to um, in a short amount of time write I don't know five or six shows of the season and some of the most fun scripts I've I've done that um, again were you know just had that that dark comedy side that makes it all twistier and and more edgy for for a writer. Well, I never felt like like the show was afraid to take chances. No, it it was pretty um it was pretty out there and uh it wasn't afraid. I think they they especially for the day, I think they took enormous chances. And since then, you have done so many great shows and worked as a lot, a lot on uh, some great science fiction shows. Mm-hmm. Has, has that kind of become your your niche over the years? Kind of, but again, it was, you know, the, when I began on The Outer Limits, um, the question was, well, can you do science fiction? And then, um, you know, then a few years later, it was, the, does he do anything but science fiction? So <laughs> it, um, um, I've just kind of like writing, I kind of walked in, I've, I've always been fascinated by, by science fiction and been a fan of it. It was really just seized an opportunity to, and I just said, you know, I can do this, and I really want to do it. So when the opportunity to um, join the Outer Limits team in Vancouver arose, I really, you know, the greatest thing was that we were making a little movie every week. It's an anthology, which, you know, they're so rare on television, even even in our 500 drama universe, they're so rare. But back then, you know, it was the really the only anthology. And it was, I still think it's the longest-running anthology in television history, the New Outer Limits, um, with I don't know, 147 shows, something like that. But it uh, it was a great, it was great. I mean, it was really, really a wonderful experience for me. And particularly a few of the episodes that really resonated for me personally were just fantastic memories. What are you working on these days? I've got uh, the C- season two of Between for Netflix uh, coming up. We're in the middle of shooting that uh, in Toronto. That's been keeping me busy. And there's a really interesting project that uh, is in development that um, I'm very hopeful about that um, with a, a, another, uh, or I should say a young writer whom I'm partnering up with, who is a First Nations young man in uh, Canada, and it's really, really a powerful piece, and, and we're um, really, it's a tribute to him, that, uh, but it's called uh, Dirty Red Boys, so it's controversial even by its title, but a really, really kind of dark but hyper-real um, story of Native peoples in uh, a border town in Canada. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, that, so that's what I'm doing now and um, kind of come up for air every once in a while. And You've definitely have kept yourself busy over all these years. I mean, it doesn't look like you've really t- 
taken too many breaths since uh, the late 70s. No, but, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm going to take a big, deep breath soon. I, I really, it may be time to just, you know, um, take a step back. But uh, writing will always continue, and the irresistible project will always pop up. So, but it's, a, you know, it's a, it's a, a joy to be able to work, in, you know, in these fields. It's really wonderful, and especially with the age factor, because, it, you know, if you're you know, past your late 30s, you don't even have to get to 50, let alone my unthinkable age, to be passe or to not be taken seriously in a, a hiring setting and all that. So uh, I haven't, I've, I've been really fortunate in my career, but, you know, it's, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying, hey, writers are the only ones. You look at um, actresses who are, you know, hit 32 and it's like, oh my God, I hope she has uh, a day job. So it's, that's a tough marketplace. Just like anything else, survival is uh, its own reward and, and, and it doesn't come easy. Well, darling, we meet again. It's good to see you're back. Now turn around and let me see the rest of you. Hey, not bad. All right, we are back and we were talking about Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Though you had mentioned, Josh, that uh, there's another Elvira film out there, which I didn't even know about for years and years, even though it came out in 2001. Uh, It just kind of went right under my radar. So I spent all this time tracking it down and I was kind of disappointed when I saw it finally you shouldn't have been kind of disappointed you should have been fucking pissed off <laughs> it's so awful <laughs> now i don't know what possessed her to do this i get what she, what her ideal was because she was friends with vincent price in real life and the film is dedicated to vincent price and it's it's supposed to be a throwback to all of the old hammer films and whatnot which Vincent Price didn't do a whole lot of Hammer films, so I think she kind of crossed genres there, but fine. Haunted Hills is a period piece that is even more dated comedy-wise than Elvira, Mistress of the Dark was. There's nothing funny about Haunted Hills. Richard O'Brien looks like he's having a ball making the movie, but this has got to be an albatross around his neck. I mean, this movie is so brutal. Oh, this man has no shame. Richard O'Brien has no shame. He was a God. He's been in some of the worst movies ever made. He doesn't have. He doesn't have to do anything. What you know? But but still, I mean, Haunted Hills is so bad. I mean, there's nothing funny. Nothing. There's not a single funny joke. I mean, this is John. You brought up earlier the whole Bob Hope, Milton Berle type of humor. This is stale even for them. Look, her assistant's fat, so her entire defining characteristic is she wants to eat all the time. Look, the hench- the henchman is kind of big and dopey. His defining characteristic is being big and dopey. It's There's nothing in this movie. The jokes are horrendous. And just like Mistress of the Dark, even in 2001, they stop for a beat. This is vaudeville humor. In 2001, and it does not work at all. Just to be fair to Richard Bryan, when I said that he was in the worst movies of all times, I really am just 
concentrating on 2000s Dungeons and Dragons, which to me is one of the worst movies ever made. That, that it's a pretty terrible movie. Yeah, and I will say that that's worse than Elvira's Haunted Hills, but Elvira's Haunted Hills is very bad. I'd done some reading on that, and again, I'm just throwing this out there because I might be wrong, but they had said that there was supposed to be a direct sequel to Mistress of the Dark, and allegedly it was sitting on the shelf for quite a long time because it was released in 2001. Now, this is just what I found out. I wish I could remember where I found it. Once again, I'm just throwing it out there. I'm probably wrong from the information that I got it from. But they said it was supposed to be a direct sequel to that. Now, I haven't seen the film yet. You're always wrong. How am I always wrong? Okay, let's review. Steely Dan is not one person. We get fringe benefits, not French benefits. James Dean is an actor. Jimmy Dean makes sausage. And you know what, Ned? It's not the Leaning Tower of Pizza. We don't get French benefits. No, it, it, can't, it can't be a direct sequel because no. of the fact that it takes place in, like, Victorian England. Yeah, 1851 in the Carpathian Mountains of Romania. So it's it it could be a prequel with uh, some of her family members. Um, this wouldn't even be her great aunt that's in the film. Even the title, Haunted Hills, and then you see the, the, DVD, the DVD cover and it's her boobs right under that. It's like, oh my God, we're still making jokes about Elvira's boobs in 2001. She must be really, really old now, too. Like She's like in her 70s, isn't she? Well, let's see. She was born in 51. So, yeah, 50, 60, she'd be 66, 65 this year. I mean, she really is stunningly yeah. beautiful, in all honesty, without the makeup. She really is. I mean, so I think she did a film called Mother's Boys um, a few years ago. You're always wrong. I don't know if it ever got released. They have a poster. It's just her on the cover of it. And she really looks unbelievably beautiful. I mean, it's really photoshopped, but um, I'm not sure. Maybe it's on IMDb or something. Well, yeah, I think she's gorgeous with the makeup and without. Of course, I prefer with the makeup. And that was one of the things I was very happy about. Josh, you mentioned the uh, search for the next Elvira. And I was definitely uh, glued to my TV set back in 2007 for that show. Um, talk about a lot of hot goth girls and rockabilly chicks all in one show. Strangely enough, as much as... I'm against Elvira being blonde. The blonde chick is the one I wanted to win. She was the best one. I don't remember the show. Was this on like sci-fi or something? Or No, Fox Reality. This was buried in the high numbers of satellite <laughs> TV. <laughs> Where TV shows go to die. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I still remember. I mean, it was uh, Kitty Corvette was the one who I was really fond of. And uh, the idea was that Elvira was going to franchise herself. So, you know, like for mall openings and things like that, you, you know, Cassandra Peterson can, can't be in multiple places at once, but you'll get an official brand Elvira. And I don't think that was really in 2007 something people wanted. Now, to go back to the 80s, she was, like we said, everywhere. So she could have used that in the 80s. She was almost a, uh, a, a Santa Claus back then. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the 80s Elvira. Because n not just with her movie Macabre show, but she had a sitcom pilot made, which is just as bad as Mistress of the Dark for humor purposes. It's not even remotely funny. I actually wrote about it in the first time I ever wrote for your magazine, Mike. You are always good for the obscure TV shows. That's that's why that's why I'm here. 
But also, she was actually so big at one point that I don't know if you guys remember this or if you guys had cable at the time. In 1984, MTV on Halloween night gave her six hours to show horror-themed music videos, and she showed Night of the Living Dead for the middle two hours. And she, she actually inserted herself into the film in, in jokes that would never make it today. Like, r- remember in Night of the Living Dead when Ben is smacking Barbara around to get her to calm down? Elvira shows up in a little bubble going, Get her! Get her! Teach her a lesson! Holy crap, could you not do a joke like that today, huh? Well, God, that it reminds me of those uh, Al takeovers when Weird Al would, would get the channel for a day or a few hours. Yeah, I mean, apparently the, apparently the 1984 one was popular enough that in 1986, they gave her a four-hour special where she showed horror-themed music videos. So was it like four hours of Monster Mash? How many four hours? Oh, there's a lot. Of- Really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The, oh, wow. Iron, Iron Maiden, and uh, you know, you got you got some of the heavy metal stuff. It goes beyond Thriller. Yeah, I mean, it, it does. It does go beyond Thriller. Yeah. And it's you know, it's like you know, dedicated just to the holiday. It's not, you yeah. know, and and, and, wow. and it aired one time on each day, and it's only, you know, anal retentive nerds like myself who recorded these on VHS and still have them for posterity. And yeah. she even had a music video. Yes, I remember that. She had a song, didn't she? Have Halloween. Song? Yeah, yes. it was about Halloween, oh, and it was dude, it was yes. really really bad '80s video effects and everything. Yes, but it fit perfectly for 1984. Mike, I actually sent you the song if you want to edit it into the episode later, if if you want to play it. Oh, you know I will. So you know, and she had she had a bunch of original songs. She she put out an album. She had a couple of albums where she just introduced like Alice Cooper tunes and th- things like that. But she put out a whole bunch of singles that never went over really well. I mean, Doctor Demento played them, and that's about as mainstream as she got. But she, Mike, I sent you a whole lot of her singles. If you guys can't tell, I'm kind of an Elvira fan. No. And you know what? She actually could sing. Did she ever do anything with Julie Brown? Because it feels like those two getting together would would have been a good thing. They, they did. In the early days of Fox, there was a show that only lasted like four or five episodes. But it was it, it, it was it was kind of a, a, a pranks and practical jokes type show where people didn't real they knew they were going to be on television, but her and Julie Brown would mess with the people. So it, it, it was it was kind of like Candid Camera, but mixed with practic- with a practical joke show and whatnot. Only lasted like four episodes, and they're really obscure. Yes, I have them on tape, Mike. You don't have to ask. All right. Wait, Josh, what about a comic book? There's got to be a comic book. Uh, she had multiple comic books. Uh, she had for 140-some issues, she had a comic through uh, Claypool Comics, which right. actually might still be going. And then – Mike, you're an old school comic fan. Do you remember House of Mystery from DC Comics? Yeah, I think so. Well, for some reason, they decided in I think it was 1982, might be in 1983, to to suspend regular House of Mystery. And Elvira's House of Mystery was printed by DC Comics for tw- or 13 issues, 12 regular issues, and a Halloween special. She had her own DC comic where she hosted anthologies, and issue three is actually noteworthy for dropping the comics code because of a piece of side boob. 
they wouldn't give a comics code authority. So issue three of Elvira's House of Mystery is comics code less because of side boob. What about what about like a Playboy uh, issue? No. Nope. I, I can understand why she wouldn't do nude. I mean, she yeah, did in some of her early movies, but because she she has those burns over her body. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah she, uh, she was burned as a child with uh, it was like hot oil or something like that. So a lot of the parts that are covered up by the black dress cover up her scars. Oh wow! So I so I can totally understand why yeah, she would not yeah. want to do nude, but she shows a lot in some of her. Some of her 80s stuff, she showed a lot of skin. Yeah, and yeah. if you guys look up her old 80s pictures, like the old the old L.A. movie macabre TV guide ads and whatnot, her hair was different to the point where it doesn't look like Elvira. She doesn't have that kind of beehive. She's just got straight, long black hair. And it looks so weird from what we think Elvira should look like in, those, in the like 1981-82 era. Did I remember right? Was uh, Vampira trying to sue her at one point uh vampire did sue her at one point and i, I don't think vampire should have sued her because see what happened was this is how elvira was created ac- accidentally was you know vampire was the first horror hostess back in the 1950s and they wanted to revive that in 1980 so ktla brought vampire in her real name is mala nermi and she apparently still thought she was a really big fucking deal because they said the reason it fell apart was she wanted exorbitant fees for all of this stuff. And KTLA was a relatively small station at the time. So they're like, we can't produce the kind of show you want to produce. So they already had the sets built. So they said, eh, fuck it. We'll just rip her off. So they went and made the Vampire show and just, in, their, in Elvira's words, changed just enough to not get sued. And... Mala Nermi ended up suing Cassandra Peterson for, quote, stealing her act when, in fact, she should have sued the producers because Cassandra was just doing what she was told, the role she was hired for. If anybody ripped off the Vampire show, it was the producers at KTLA, not Cassandra Peterson, but she sued her in civil court. So, and then she ended up losing. A judge said, no, while one is clearly inspired by the other, Cassandra Peterson basically pointed out how in an old Life magazine, Mala Nermi pointed out that her inspiration for Vampira was Morticia Adams. So how can you rip off something that's already a ripoff? That's basically why the case was thrown out of court and Mala Nermi, you know, fell into obscurity after that. And probably seeing Elvira burst onto you know, pop culture mainstream probably really hurt her because that that could have been her if her ego had not gotten into the way. Well, she definitely has an ego in Ed Wood. And speaking of Ed Wood, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Tim Burton, director of Batman, Beetlejuice, and Edward Scissorhands now takes you to a completely different world. The true story of a Hollywood legend, Ed Wood. And action! He made movies like no one else. You want to keep moving. You've got to get through that door. Ah, that was perfect. Perfect? Do you know anything about film production? Well, I'd like to think so. He had an eye for talent. I met Bela Lugosi. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the most uncomfortable coffin I've ever been in. No, he's very much alive. You flying saucer? He had a passion for storytelling. Get me transvestites. I need transvestites. You're flashy. They want that. Okay. But they want professionalism. So Nick Nelly without losing naivete. 
What kind of a movie is this? It's science fiction. A heartbreaking romance. Grave robbers from outer space. Grave robbers from what? And he had a secret he couldn't hide. I like to dress in women's clothing. Panties, sweaters, pumps. It's just something I do. You don't like sex with girls? No, I love sex with girls. Wearing their clothes makes me feel closer to them. How can you act so casual when you're dressed like that? All right, everybody, let's finish this picture. Touchstone Pictures presents Johnny Depp, Martin Landau, Sarah Jessica Parker, Patricia Arquette, and Bill Murray in the true story of an unforgettable filmmaker. We're making another movie. I got the Church of Beverly Hills to put up the cash. How do you get all your friends to get baptized just so you can make a monster movie? And his legacy that will live forever. How do you burn this off? Shake his legs around. Looks like he's killing. Ah! This is the one. I command you! This is the one I'll be remembered for. Ed Wood, a Tim Burton film. Really? Worst film you ever saw. Well, my next one will be better. Hello? So that's right, we'll be back next week with the Tim Burton film, Ed Wood. Until then, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host. Josh, what kind of wacky adventures have you been getting into lately? Uh, my life's been falling apart around me, but I'm still doing my shows at 1201beyond.com, where you can find a little bit of everything. You probably won't like any of it, but that's fair. Am I coming back on any of the shows soon? You are. I've asked you for a couple of them. I just, with the whole life collapsing and around me thing, schedules got a little thrown off. Well, just let me know maybe more than 20 minutes in advance, and I'll be there. Hey, that only happened like five times. How about you, John? What's been happening in your world? Kind of the same level as Josh, really, with the life falling apart and the collapsing thing. But I'm trying to make good fun out of it. Um, you know, I don't know who that is. I'm not answering it. That's kind of embarrassing. But, um, yeah, you know, um, yeah, I'm not going to... Um, I'm, why did you have to ask me that question, Mike? Because I'm terrible at answering it, even with the phone ringing. No, um, things are happening. I'm working on a book right now that should be out sometime this year. Do you have any, uh, like, a Twitter or a Facebook or a uh, URL or anything you want to plug? Um, not really. Just John Pilot at Twitter.com, which I rarely use. And if you want to come by and say I at Facebook, it's John Pilot there as well. So. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, fellas. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you want to help out the show, head on over to projection-booth.com to leave some feedback. Link on over to our Patreon. Link over to our iTunes to rate and review the show. Every review helps the Projection Booth to take over the world. Well, darlings, this is Elvira, every trick-or-treat, wishing you a safe, insane Halloween. And, oh yeah, unpleasant dreams.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. The worst episode ever.